Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm joined by Dr. Chukwemeka Nuba, also known as Dr. Chuks, but today I'll be calling him Emeka. Emeka is a mental health doctor with an interest in eating disorders. He's currently in psychiatry training in the NHS and prior to this already had years of clinical experience of eating disorders. He wrote a prize-winning essay on the relationship between race and the healthcare experience of eating disorders, which was published by the Royal College of Psychiatrists in 2021. He's also the clinical lead for Mind of the Student, a charity advancing mental health education in schools in and around London, and co-founded EDMD, the UK's first eating disorders conference for medical students. Welcome to the show, Mecca. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Honestly, I have been really excited about this conversation because I talk a lot about carving your own career path on this podcast. And I'm really excited to get your take on this because you're a shining example of how you can do this, make a big impact in your field and not have to leave clinical practice at the same time. Okay. So eating disorders, it's not a subspecialty that many doctors go into. So how did you end up here? And how did you develop your voice and your presence in this space? Very good question. And you're absolutely spot on when you say that not many people come across the world of eating disorders, which is odd, really, because eating disorders are so prevalent. Huge, huge numbers of people have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, and if not that, have issues with disordered eating. So... um yeah, and as you can imagine, it's in, that's on the increase. And not only is that due to, well, there's all sorts of reasons for it. I'm sure we can maybe get, get into it. But yeah, it, 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 it does amaze me that not that many medics know about it, but it kind of makes sense because there isn't that much of a focus on psychiatry in general and mental health. Like in my university and I always say my university was absolutely amazing. I love Manchester University, my experience there. Um, but we didn't have that much time to talk about mental health and, and really get into it. Obviously, we had placements, we had um, rotations where, you know, be it a GP or a &E or whatever it happened to be. So you're exposed to it. Um, but the problem is med school is five years and it, just to people who aren't in the field, they feel like five years is so long. Like, of course you have time to talk about mental health, but there's so much to learn, as, as you know. Um, there actually isn't that much space in the curriculum to, to, to dive into these things. So um, how did I get into it? Um, I actually fell into it. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like something which I had wanted to do since the start of med school. It actually, throughout the whole of med school, I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. Um, so an eye surgeon, it was a weird sort of epiphany. I was just kind of sat there one day and I was thinking to myself, how much do I actually like eyes? And so I, I came across the field of, um, mental health, psychiatry, 
I, I kind of wanted to avoid it because I know some people who are very close to me who are in the field. So I actually tried to avoid it at all costs because I didn't want to be like almost like a mini me or like a, some sort of like, you know, keep it in the family type thing. I wanted to branch out, do something different. Um, but actually I realized that mental health is more, the needs are more, pre- well, more pressing than ever before. Really, really topical issues. And so I wanted to get experience with that. So at the end of F1 and F2, I decided to have like an F3 year, like many medics. So by F3, I wanted to make a, a decision to spend some time doing something in psychiatry. So I applied to a hospital relatively close to me and I wanted some mental health experience. I got there and then on the day, um, the lady who kind of runs the place said, by the way, you're going to be on a, an eating disorders ward. And I was like, all right, okay. And so, yeah. That was it. And so from that experience, I was in an inpatient setting. And so then I had a couple of years there in an inpatient setting, a couple of years elsewhere, again, inpatient setting, um, lots of experience with eating disorders. And it was all eating disorders the whole time. So it's very weird because I've, considering where I am in my career, I've had far more experience in eating disorders than many people who actually work in eating disorders. So yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, in, in answer to your question. So it was kind of like fell into it and then I kind of gathered interest as time went on. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that you had four years of experience working with patients with eating disorders. You, you've got a lot of experience that a lot of psychiatrists, consultant psychiatrists don't necessarily have when it comes to eating disorders. So you did that first and then you decided to enter psychiatry training the pathway. Why did you do it this way around? And what do you think you've gained by doing it this way around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there is something about comorbidity. And it's very rare someone just presents with one issue. And I think it's very important to be well-rounded. You know, some patients come with um, psychotic illnesses. And so it's, you know, personality disorders. There's all variety of things that come along with people who have eating disorders. And I think it's really important to be well-grounded in the in all of that. And I think a traditional training program, which not everyone goes down, some people decide to do it more like scenic groups, you know, traditional training program where we get, you know, solid teaching, we can recall, you're working with a cohort and, you know, my colleague might know something, we're talking over lunch, you know, we go through so many different consultants, um, supervision, and so you learn how lots of different people do it. So I think those different things, I feel like are very, very valuable to me. I'm actually in no rush to get to consultancy. And one of my early, I call her one of my eating disorders mothers. She told me, um, don't rush to get to consultant because the majority of your learning happens on the way there. Because when you get there, you find out that you're in lots of meetings and there's lots of paperwork and there's a whole load, a whole load of stress. Well, you find that actually by the time you get there, you want to maybe branch out and do some other things. And yeah, so I'm doing a formal route, but you know, the way things are going and going, going back to eating disorders full time, because I think the need is great. And I think in particular where my interest lies. It's so interesting your approach to your career, because I think a lot of people look at the training pathway as the final destination. Becoming a consultant is the final destination, but it seems to me that you have a passion or a vision and then you have kind of crafted your career around that and made an informed decision that there are benefits to going into training that will help me to get to where I want to go to. 
I think that's a really, a really great way to look at it. Because I know when I was, when I was still in medicine, I know medicine wasn't for me ultimately, but my mindset was so much fixed on the idea of like, these are the, these are the, the roots and I have to pick one. So I have to pick the least arduous or the, like the, the most bearable one. Um, more so than here's my goal, here's my vision and which one of these fits into that. So I, you know, knowing that you are looking at it more as a stop on the journey to where you want to go to your final destination. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of greater vision you have for your career and for like flying the flag as you describe? I think the the more you get on, the more you realize what you don't want to do. By default, it narrows the, the options anyway. So you can start to see the, the picture, start to clear, the fog starts to lift. You know, if I do end up going down the eating disorders route, which is highly likely, I would love to be involved in the promotion of returning to the, just the love of people. And this is, of course, this isn't just minority ethnics, people truly loving themselves. There's all sorts of creative ways I have in mind of, of doing that outside of the day job, because his day job is looking after patients, inpatient, outpatients, whatever it happens to be, but creative ways of involving myself in the community. I'm currently um, embarking on a wicked project with a, an amazing charity in central London. They're doing this, you know, project with women and, you know, women and, to, and you know, kind of their relationships with their bodies, which I find is so interesting to me. And um, so I, I see it as being my job, my day job, how many, however many days that is. And then working in the community, working creatively, working, collaborating with companies, with people. Um, I love collaboration with people because I think, you know, we're just individuals, you know, random individuals. We have something to offer. But I think, you know, it's kind of the way I see it is like Power Rangers. You know, at the end, they used to, all the Power Rangers come together and form this huge um, Power Ranger. So much more when you come together. You know, all have different skills and abilities. And um, yeah, so that's how I see it. At some point, collaborating, like I said, with different people. And then, but ultimately, with the impact of increasing people's understanding when it comes to, for example, like you mentioned earlier, I started with um, my colleague, Dr. Ali Jaffe. Um, she's amazing. Um, I started this, uh, you know, EDMD, Educating med students about eating disorders and, and, and the issues around it. And that's one of the different ways. I mean, that's extracurricular, you know, that's working with different organizations. And it was so successful the first year at my gosh, we had really, really amazing speakers who are so enthusiastic and they just wanted to give up their time and just, and just, and really, really like we couldn't thank them enough for making the first year so um, incredible. Because I think, to be honest, I think as much as I love the day job, I think those are the things which act as like the ignition or the, the launch field for the day job. Right. That's so cool. I mean, I've, I've met so many people who, as they progress in their clinical career and they get more specialized, they feel more trapped and they feel like they have fewer options. But I think the vision that you have it gives you more opportunities because you can think of so many different ways that you can fulfill your vision. And I know that you're working on a book at the moment. Can you talk more about it and how you found this opportunity and what, what it's, what is the book about? 
That's a very good point. It's I, I and that's this is something I really want people to catch. And you know, I'm I don't pretend to be some sort of like fountain of knowledge or anything, but if it's generally for like medics, it's medical students, so anyone coming through it, it's actually enjoying and grabbing the opportunities along the way. Um but yeah, so the, this book is called Eating Disorders Don't Discriminate. It's a collaboration myself and um, the amazing Bailey Spin, uh, who, for those that don't know, she's a singer and film kind of YouTuber and TikToker. Um, she's American. And we, we came together and have brought together these amazing faces and produced a, a book which is split into five parts, focusing on the five main eating disorders. So OSFED, um, binge eating disorder, um, anorexia, bulimia, ORFID. Um, ORFID is avoiding restrictive food intake disorder and OSFED is other specified food and eating disorders, just in case anyone's out there and doesn't know what those, those are. That's, that's part of the, the idea of the book is bringing together. So these are, like I said, 33, they are well-known faces and we have some brilliant names in the book. They've shared their stories. They've been so transparent and um, gracious enough to um, share their stories and stories of hope. And stories of what is actually like going through an eating disorder, you know, going through the, in, in the midst of it. Um, and so that's what we've, you know, kind of want. We've created this piece so people can read it and people can be inspired. So who's the book for? It's for people who are going through an eating disorder, for people who know someone with an eating disorder. It's for people who just love reading popular medicine. It's hopefully a one-stop shop people who actually want to know more about eating disorders. Let's get into the gritty parts of it. And what I do is I write at multiple points throughout the book. I share some of my stories, hopefully some of them quite amusing, hopefully quite um, educational and enlightening as well. And then Bailey writes in it as well. Um, and so, it, and then we have some amazing contributors, you know, Professor Janet Treasure, an absolute legend. She wraps the um, forward. And then we have, you know, Professor Cynthia Bullock, Jessica Wilson, incredible dietitian. We have Sam Clarkstone. We have really top professionals through writing throughout the book as well. And then we also have people who have loved ones who had eating disorder. They write throughout the book as well. So you're getting hopefully a 360 view on what life of an eating disorder is like. Um, so that's the premise of the book. Uh, hopefully it's a really enjoyable read. And it's um, enlightening. Um, and yeah, we kind of, I kind of fell into it in answer to your question, kind of fell into it with one of my colleagues who we're in the middle of doing a, a separate project, which is a very, very long-term project. So it doesn't sound like, probably sounds like I have like a million things on the go. I actually don't. This one's like a really, really like gradually, very slow burn, which you'd be doing over a long period of time. But in the process of that, I thought to myself, I was like, oh, you're going to be, we're going to be talking to quite a lot of um, different people here. Why don't I don't know, come together, like bring people together in like some sort of book form? And this was kind of kind of COVID time where you're thinking actually it became quite clear the 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 issues when it comes came to eating disorders became so apparent. I mean, we already we knew it; those of us in the field knew it. But it was so apparent, and it was like the elephant in the room that this is not just affecting. Your stereotypical, you know, white, young, female, skinny, you know, that you're talking, you're actually talking about many, many 
different types of individual who can be affected by it. And so the two kind of things just collided. I was, I was really challenged being in, in the field, especially as a black male. You rarely get many, actually very few, a handful in the whole country, very, very few of us. And um, I think that inspired, you know, the kind of issue that these kind of stories need to be told. Yeah, and that's how it, that's how it came to be. Wow, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to hear that you are educating people through storytelling. I think that's a really amazing way to, to teach people, to, to show them more about eating disorders and change the narrative around that because telling stories, people sharing their experiences as opposed to kind of a textbook that a lot of doctors are used to having to read is just such a, an effective way of just getting across what it really is like and who is really affected by these things. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that. One of the things I was telling the publishers, I was saying that, you know, I want this, like, I want this book. This book is, obviously I'm going to be biased. It's good. Like, you know, there's a lot of information in there that people do not know about eating disorders. I want universities to pick it up and read it, you know, because, you know, if they're doing, let's say, for example, you're like, my university and don't have much time. This book gives some information. I'm not saying it's a textbook, you know, obviously it's not going to have the, 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 the meat of what you need for a textbook, but at least it's a starting point. It gives you some, some context. Cause I think that's something really important as a medic, you know, you're, you're dealing with the individual and their context. You're not just dealing with the individual dealing with them in their world. And I think this book kind of gives you a glimpse as to what some, what the world of someone who's going through these things actually looks like. You mentioned that there's this kind of narrative of eating disorders that it only affects white young women. And as you mentioned from COVID that there's all the experience that we had of COVID, we've seen that there are plenty of other kinds of people who don't fit this stereotype, who are also suffering with eating disorders, who are maybe not getting the care they need. That might be black people, Asian people, people from other ethnic minorities, or just people in general who don't demographically fit the bill, if you like. This kind of biased narrative that we have is part of the problem affecting their experience but can you talk a little bit more about how specifically this this bias narrative is is impacting on how people experience care for eating disorders and maybe what are the other factors as well that are involved in creating their experience i guess we can go through them so the classic is young the stereotype is young white wealthy females who are skinny yeah, and yeah, I'm probably miss one as well. Um, they're also straight. Those are the six. That's how we envisage in our head. And I think when you look at the demographics, I'm purely talking demographics here, you then think of, no, actually it is happening in people of color. And what we're getting is, you know, in answer to your question, is people of color get to their GP, for example, because majority of healthcare happens outside of hospitals. <laughs> People go to their GPs with quite obvious signs of an eating disorder and the GP, because they don't fit that narrative, the GP either assumes it's something, something else, or they think it's something, um, ethnocultural for some reason, or they put it down to something else. 
it's, it's, it's not just skinny people that get eating disorder. You know what's what's interesting? I have to admit, even as a black woman myself, <laughs> who's who's had to kind of navigate growing up in a country that has white standards of beauty and be conscious about protecting my sense of self, before I came across your work, I didn't think of a black person. I don't think that the image of a black person was the first that came to mind when I thought of eating disorders. Relaka, I can tell you now, I can't even quantify it. The number of not just black people, but mainly black, who message me privately or who have come up to me because they know the work I do, either tell me their issues, told me about a friend or a family member that I have issues currently, but I can't tell you the number is, is so high. People don't really talk about this. People don't talk about it because it's, you know, a stigma in the communities. And remember, minority communities, people tend to be stigmatized as families based on one individual. So, yeah, I, I, it's, yeah, anyway, I could talk about that for ages. But yeah, very good point. You, I guess that's your reflection on how you have perceived, you know, people with eating disorders. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I literally fell into the same trap that you're describing that we all think that it's young, white, rich, straight women <laughs> who have eating disorders. And that's actually just, that's just a small, very small subsection of a much larger picture. How can an individual just be a bit more ready to <laughs> challenge themselves, if you like? And just be in that position of of um of being open to um biases because i feel i feel as if sometimes we're just going along in our lives and and it does take a lot of deep questioning to to really ask why and why and why well one of my mentors used to say you can't go swimming and not get wet you can't live in a society which all these things are being thrown at us left right and center what we watch what we you know how how what we come across you know, adverts, what we exposed to it so frequently. But I think it's actually very hard. It's very, very hard. You almost have to be incredibly mindful, incredibly self-aware. For example, one of my friends said, at the end of each day, you're just being sad. Why am I feeling sad? And then she realized, clocks up how much time she's been spending scrolling. And then she's like, actually, subconsciously, I've been taking in this, 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 all this stuff. And no one said anything hard, you know, rude to her or cruel to her, but, but you're kind of matching up your life alongside some other people that you're seeing. And, you know, all of this stuff, we're just subconsciously taking it all in. Um, I think, how can we be more mindful? So, I, look, I would, um, so it's something I started very recently on Saturdays. I never use my phone. So I turn off my phone on Friday night. I turn it next back on Sunday morning. Um, not everyone is able to do that. I think being really intentional about stepping out and reflecting, um, and that could look like anything to some people. It may look like a couple of hours in a day. It might look like, you know, maybe a, a week off you take some annual leave and just go somewhere. I, I don't know. But I feel like you have to stop in this crazy, crazy, harried world that we live in. Everyone seems very rushed including myself, and there's that kind of, you know, comparing, you know, people spend hours on like LinkedIn or you compare yourself alongside other people's careers and it's very easy to to be drawn into this comparison thing. And it, it does in, inherently make us less, I don't know, it makes us less satisfied, but 
but but but more so it reinforces the stereotypes, which in answer to your question, you know, if you're seeing all these you know wealthy people going on holiday on your Instagram, you know, then you know, and they look a certain way, feel like these are how things these kind of things perpetuate. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really a case of it's almost like seeing is believing in a sense that until you're shown a way, a different way of being, or you're exposed to someone else's a different kind of exp- of experience that someone else has had, you just can't. You almost can't imagine it a lot of the time. I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been wonderful talking to you. I have just one more question for you. I just want you to imagine that you are the dean of your university, and you can influence the curriculum in any way that you see fit. What kind of curriculum would you create to prepare future healthcare professionals to make mental health care services more inclusive? So what I, I think what I would do is I would, so I was one of the very few people who had a public health rotation um, in my foundation years. It's not many people get it, actually. Public health job is so important to understand public health. Because the thing is, if someone, for example, has alcoholic liver disease, that's gastro. Why do they have alcoholic liver disease? Because they're depressed and they drink a lot. Yeah, that's health. But why do they? Why are they depressed? And then you look at this wider social determinants of health. So I almost feel like. Things tend to start, and this is one of the reasons why I decided to go into mental health. I personally think mental health was almost very open to the very start. And then you get, why do people smoke 20 tablets a day? Why do they have lung disease? Because they have anxiety or this and that. And then even above that, you get public health. Public health are the social wider determinants of health, you know, your income, your education, your context, your upbringing. I, I feel as though at medical school, some of these foundations of really understanding the context and spending more time studying public health and understanding it as a concept. Because even you talk to medics now, they don't even know public health is even they like rotation and they don't know even some of the terminologies. These medics, um, which is fine, you don't need to, but I think it would really increase people's appreciation of inequities. Um, and I think that is how you then change the system. People need to appreciate it's a problem first. You can't just change it. So it needs to start from medical school, which is, again, making reference to the EDMD, medical, uh, you know, the education for eating disorders. It almost needs to start there before you then go into like kind of deeper things. Mm, that's such an interesting response. I'm always amazed. Every guest who comes on here when I ask that, a question like, what? curriculum would you want to create there's always a really interesting new answer and I've never had an answer like that before what it makes me think of is you know that five whys exercise when you're trying to understand um an an idea or a concept and you just keep asking why why and it's so interesting that you kind of apply that to healthcare conditions as well we don't we I don't know if I've ever heard anyone kind of apply that kind of why 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 and Ultimately, yes, we need to understand the kind of the social milieu that people are in and really apply that kind of thinking to how we approach changing that for people as well. Sir Michael Marble, the legend, this work has been done for years. It's just a case of 
let, you know, let's not even get into it, but you know, it gets political and this and that. And there's no right way of doing it. But unfortunately, it's more resource allocation. Governments of all different shades have different pressures. What is topical at the moment? You know, that's kind of, they're almost more inclined to put their funds towards that because they need to be seen to be doing something about an issue, you know, rather than maybe dealing with more wider needs, thinking long-term, the government, you know, I'm not even just saying this government or any, any government, you know, they know that they're only in power for five years. So they don't really want to think too long-term to see results within five years. Then it becomes very political. So unfortunately, decisions that are made aren't necessarily the best decisions when thinking of longevity. So where, where can listeners learn more about you and stay updated about the upcoming book? So um, you can go, visit, you can follow me on X, I think it's called now, Dr. Chooks, D-R, and then Chooks, C-H-U-K-S underscore. So that's kind of my handle across that and Instagram. And then the website, drchooks.co.uk. And I think it'll be a nice place for there to read to update people on, on other information. And just in general, just because I fortunately am collaborating with different people from different areas of the world. So it'll be a nice place for people to stop in and see kind of what is going on. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. This has been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. I hope it inspired you in your personal journey. Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor. Subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.